Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Over the weekend, I spent some time with ta Coates on stage in front of a couple of thousand of our best friends at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. I feel like the Prime Minister of Great Britain or something. Look at that. There's now people walking over their cell phones. It's all right. Are you part of this? Tanahasi, of course, is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and one of America's preeminent writers on matters of race and equality and justice. We spent quite a bit of time at our session at South by Southwest talking about these issues, but we started our conversation, which you'll hear in a moment, talking about his latest project as the writer of the Captain America comic. You know, I grew up um, in uh, West Baltimore in the 80s in this household where, you know, um, I tell people all the time, Malcolm X. Like, we didn't have Jesus, but Malcolm X was like Jesus. And it would not be very likely at that point in my life that I would read a comic book called Captain America. Because he's called Captain America, you think he's sort of this nationalistic flag waver. But in fact, um, I want to say something, but I don't want to say it. No, um, just, just- it's just us. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He's like Barack Obama. He is someone who believes in the ideal of America. Like really, really, you know, uh, believes that it's possible, really believes that it, you know, it actually could be. And so I think within that is, depending on the reader, a mix of uh, admirable idealism or uh, disappointing naivete. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all of that is, you know, in there. And, and, and I think, like, one of the reasons why I'm really attracted to the character is anybody who knows my work, I don't fall anywhere near any of that. But when you're writing comic books, you know, you can't, like, live in, in, in your place. You can't live in your world. It, it's similar to journalism in the sense that the task is to figure out how someone could come to arrive at that, you know, sort of point of view and that view of, of the country, even as it's so different from your very... So, I mean, I think what you're saying is that you're going to have to find something good to say about America in this process. It's not hard to say something good about America. Um, I, I love America. Great food, great culture, cool people. You know, just because I don't like the politics doesn't mean I don't like the country. That's the know? new American motto. Great food, <laughs> sure. cool, cool people. Sure, some cool people. Cool people. Um, no, but you're going to have to step outside yourself and actually No, it's more than saying something good. It's like to believe in America as an ideal and as a great ideal. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and like to be loyal to that. Well, I know, but I'm asking if you know. Do I know myself? Yeah, yeah. Can, you, can, you, can you bring yourself to do that? You're yeah, embarking yeah, yeah. on this process. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't like write... Um, I mean, you notice, like when you go to profile somebody... You don't go to profile them, you know, to simply, you know, vent your own beliefs. You really want to know why they tick. And when you go to sit down to write, the task is to translate that, you know, um, as, you know, fairly and accurately as you can. While, you know, still, you know, having maybe your, your share of criticism. So I look forward to trying to inhabit the character of somebody that really believes that. Right. Let's discuss. Um, I wrote Black Panther and I. Don't oh, I didn't be, know. Really. I don't want to be Tell king of that. Wakanda. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I was able to do that. You know what I mean? How many people come up to you and go, Wakanda forever now? Stewardess did that. A stewardess did yeah, that. On the plane. Flight attendant, excuse me, that's not the polite term. It was great. I love that. It's so cool. <laughs> so, anybody can do that to me anytime. I'm, I'm really okay with that. 
I'm good with that. It's not awkward at all? No, I love it. All it's right, pretty all cool. Right. Well, let's talk about Black Panther for a minute, and I want you to contextualize Black Panther in this moment. Obviously, it's a huge success. People could have predicted a certain level of success, but not this level of success. So is that success based in part on the moment in American history we're in? Yeah, I mean, I think the first reason why it's so successful is um, it was created by um, a great filmmaker. Um, and someone who, uh, in Ryan Coogler, who's on his way um, to becoming, as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the preeminent artists of, of his generation. Um, he has made three very different movies at this point, um, all of them really, really, really well done. Um, I say that because I think, as you know, I'm about to, we talk about the content, with the meaning of the movie, but if the movie sucks, none of, none of this matters. In addition to that, I think what he was able to do is to reach into um, a conflict that is not often tapped in uh, in terms of movies on, on that level, um, on the level of Marvel Comics or, or a Disney movie. And that is the very fraught, very beautiful, and a very tense relationship between black people across the diaspora. And there is so much um, room for mythology and storytelling you know, in, 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 that, in that relationship. If you look at the cast, man, I mean, you got black folks from Oakland, you know, black folks from South Carolina, black folks from Trinidad, Tobago, London, Zimbabwe, Kenya. We've never seen anything like that. To place it in the context of uh, American politics in the moment. Yeah, I think um, it's not a mistake that when you have, like, say, a president um, who refers to uh, Haiti as a shithole talks disparagingly of, you know, Nigerians um, who became president for his commentary, you know, across the board, uh, his negative commentary across the board towards people of color, that when you have a, a film like that, that says what it says about black people, that presents them as a literal royalty, that folks glam at that and folks want to say, look, I think if Barack Obama was president, that film still would have been successful. I want to be like really, really clear about that. But do I feel like there was a need Right now, specifically in the larger country, yeah, yeah, I do. And I also think there was a need, again, regardless of who was president, among black people to see their experience presented with all the glamour, you know, mythology and legend that white people get all the time. Somebody told me a story about how somebody was walking, you know, they heard somebody walking out of um, the Black Panther premiere at 125th um, in Harlem. And a dude comes out and he's high and he says to his buddy, so this is what white people feel like every day. (laughs) Because those stories are presented like that every day. If you think about it, across the board. I mean, Black Panther there, I don't know how many Black Panthers are going to be produced over the next year, you know, uh, uh, starring a, a predominantly white cast. And so I think, like, the novelty of that and the fact that it was done by one of the talent, most talented directors in Hollywood right now is just huge. I wanted to get your assessment of how the quote-unquote mainstream media, of which we're both part, uh, is doing this argument about objectivity, the discomfort a lot of people in our industry still have about uh, using the term racist to describe the sitting president of the United States. Just give me your give me your your, your feelings about that and the role that we're playing right now. I am oddly optimistic. <laughs> that is extremely odd. If you've known yeah, him, that's, yeah. that's no, no, no. I actually, because I think like people are actually becoming more comfortable with. You know, like after the shithole comment, you know what I mean? I think a lot, I see a lot less hesitancy about Trump than I've seen in the past. Um, folks are doing a really, really good job. Like, I, 
in this era, we judge by, by what we read. And I read newspapers. I read a lot of investigative. I read magazines. And I think a lot of that stuff is really, really bang up. Uh-huh. So I have an oddly optimistic. I think media is actually performing pretty well right now. Let me ask you uh, this has to do with... Oh, I could read less um, of these profiles that seek to go into, quote unquote, Trump country and ask people, are they sorry yet for voting for him? I could... Why? I could, Why? Because the premise is like... Um, that these folks did not know what they were doing. And they did, and that's what they always find out when they go. Like, people are not sorry. Because they knew what they were doing. And I don't say that in any sort of, in fact, I don't say that in any sort of condescending or disparaging way. I say that, in fact, out of, you know, incredible respect, you know, for their intelligence. They did know what they were doing. But less know? respect for their racism. No respect for their racism at all. No, because, I mean, what you're saying implicitly is that, is that, these reporters are going out naively thinking that, oh, now you've seen that. Yeah, now you realize. No, actually, race was central to the decision making process. Yes. Of, of and they voting. say it to the reporters when they go out there and the reporters are shocked that that's what they're hearing. <laughs> you know, it, it's as though they think like they misheard Trump or they didn't quite get <laughs> what Trump was saying, that when you know, he said about the judge, he's a Mexican, that somehow like that didn't. They was understood. It was a compliment. No, it was. <laughs> right, right, right. It's great. He's a yeah, he's a Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think um, people vote for people for all sorts of reasons, you know, and sometimes those reasons are not reasons that we like. Let me come back to journals in one second. There's mm-hmm. a big continuing controversy around the New York Times opinion page. There are a lot of people in America who want to um, make sure that their reading experience is pure in a kind of way. Um, mm. I think I have to say, it's so weird to say this to you. Um, I think I have to say, in all fairness, I can't answer that question. Um, and I can't answer that question because the editor of the editorial page is James Bennett, um, who is responsible for my career. Um, He's one of our best friends. One of my best, yes, exactly, who I just had dinner with. Um, I have gone through the experience of having my friends, or people who I thought were my friends, commenting on my life. It's not fun. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't have their opinions about the Times editorial page. I'm just saying that my relationship with James... Well, let me, let me push on this and, and maybe broaden it out. Okay. I mean, is there a problem in the media? We, we've had this discussion before at The Atlantic. You know, it's like looking for people who are pro-Trump in some way to write for us. There's a specific problem in that for us. And I'm not saying this in a condescending or snarky way, but anything that appears in our magazine has to pass a basic fact checking test. Right. And so it's, it's very hard. No, 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 no. I don't, I mean, I'm really, I'm no, it's literally true. Yeah. It's literally true. Like yeah. you can make the argument for Trump, but you have to use a set of facts to make that argument. Nevertheless, yeah, well, yeah I know <laughs> it, it, it's a sad state of affairs when people are applauding for the idea that we should I know, pre- it is. true things, it is. right? It is. Uh, so here we are. But the question is, I mean, it, are you either in the resistance or not in the resistance? Well, let me put it this way. Are you in the resistance? No, I'm a journal. I'm a writer. I'm a writer. No, I would never identify myself that way. Um, I'm a writer. I think my opinions and my politics are very, very clear. One can be in sympathy with the aims of activists. For instance, I'm in deep sympathy, obviously, with Black Lives Matter. I would not identify myself as part. And by the way, Black Lives Matter has not asked that of me, by the way. So I'm not, you know what I mean? It's not been an exchange that we've had, you know, from the leadership. But I just, like, my job is different. Like, it's often the people who you are most in sympathy with that you acquire the most distance from. 
Um, because they're the people who you love. They're the people who you want to win. They're the people who, you know, in your private moments, you're cheering on. And when you're called to write, even though you have your opinions, there has to be a kind of basic fairness, which by which I do not mean objectivity and lack of opinion. But you have to have, you know, as you said, a kind of loyalty to facts, you know what I mean, that, you know, you construct your opinions out of. The job of activist is different. The job of the activist is to get people to do something. So you opened a door and I have to walk in. Cornell West. Right. Um, I think you opened that door. Huh? The door was open. I just walked through. I'm walking through. No, because Cornell, part of the critique of Cornell West, of you, is that you're not opining or you're not leading the charge of, on the left for income equality or, or, or right. structural change in, in, in capitalism or, or a whole set of other things that he wants you to do. And your response has been, that's not my job. But, but maybe you can contextualize this one-sided argument because we've noticed that you haven't really argued back at him. But, but talk about what's going on in that controversy a little bit. Mm. And it might be the answer that I'm a writer and I do whatever I want and, and people... I mean, that, gonna... that's the answer. I was hoping for more, though. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Um, I, I haven't talked to Cornel West. I, I, I don't know, you know what, what, where that came from. I'll say, first of all, that there is a construction, I think, or there has been a construction, and I grew up with this in the 90s, of what people call public intellectuals and what I'm sometimes called, and I hate that title, wherein you have somebody who is perceived as brilliant, intelligent, all these sort of adjectives when you win the MacArthur genius um, that they put on you, right? And that, therefore, means that you can be brilliant, smart, intelligent on anything. The notion is that it's, it's here. You, you have a certain you know, facility within your brain that does not necessarily require you to be particularly deep read on a subject, I get activists all the time who come and, you know, I meet with and I meet with them mostly because I usually learn something by meeting with them about, you know, whatever, you know, subject that they're they're working on, who I might be in sympathy with, love what they're doing, who want me to say, well, you're so brilliant on this. And you have this fiery sense of justice on this. Clearly, that means you can come over here and do. And I, I can't. I tell them it's not that easy. I can't just turn it on. And if you if I did what you wanted, it would ultimately embarrass your cause, because the minute I had to stand up next to somebody who knew something about that, who was on the opposing side, I would be embarrassed. They would humiliate me. They would destroy me in any sort of debate. You know, and so I just, um, I have to, you know, like I think about it as fighting. You know what I mean? When you throw in a punch, you know, your feet have got to be set. You know, and my feet are set in the thing that I have read, researched, and thought about. Just one quick thing in addition to that, too. I think also, there's no intellectual fight like a sectarian fight. It's often when you have two quote-unquote um, thinkers, writers, whatever, who uh, agree on 95%, who will viciously denounce each other on that 5%. I don't, I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I just, you know, just to make this really, really specific. At the same time that, you know, that sort of attack was coming in from, you know, towards me from Cornell West and other people, he was touring the country with a gentleman by the name of Robert George, who's a professor up at Harvard, who thinks, for instance, that LGBT people shouldn't have the right to be married. They were appearing together. You know what I mean? They were in debate, but they were friendly with each other. They were, you know what I mean? And that was okay. <laughs> and it's just, you know, sort of wild to see, you know, uh, when you have, you know, someone who, you know, is so 
obviously opposed on, you know, basic rights. But somehow you guys can find common ground. But, you know, we who are much more closely aligned, we can't. Like, we, you know, have to do this, you know, vicious denunciation back and forth. I am... Is that in part because there doesn't seem to be enough room in the public discourse for many black intellectuals, public, sorry to use the expression, but public intellectuals? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I hate all this. <laughs> I hate all this. Man, no, but, it, but you make an interesting point, going back to this New York Times point that you also won't answer. Um, <laughs> that, no, it's interesting. Like, there's sometimes the anger toward, on the left toward the New York Times seems hotter than the anger on the left toward Fox News, in a way because Fox perhaps News is just think, Fox News. They perhaps because ex- you think the New York Times should know better. Yeah, that's, that's, that anger that's, comes yeah. out of, uh, well, that's, and maybe that's the same thing with me. Right. You know, maybe that's the answer to the question right. I just gave, right? right. The, the fact is that you feel like the people who are closer to you actually really, really should know better. And you've right. almost kind of dismissed the folks that are over right. here. Like, just complain. You have no real respect for them anyway, so it's okay. It doesn't make you as angry. Right. Um, one of the critiques is uh, on some parts of the left is that you weren't tough enough mm-hmm. on Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. I know somebody who believes that not to be true, and that's Barack Obama. He believes that you're tough enough but, uh, or, or too tough. Obama is kind of an, the, the appearance of Obama and the success of Obama um, is the animating force behind so many of the pieces that you did in the Atlantic over the last nine years. And, and of course, the book. Mm. Um, I don't know where you want to start on that. It's a big question, but it's it's fascinating to people. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, as you said, it's tied to the question I won't answer. You know, <laughs> you know, I write in, in my new book. We were eight years in power. One sale now. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's selling. <laughs> um, I came to the Atlantic uh, through a piece, you know, that I wrote on Bill Cosby, but that was overshadowed, you know, by you know the fact that it looked like uh, well, our first African American nominee for president, and it, it was um, a life changing event for me. Um, the the fact of Barack Obama, I think, for journalists across the board, not just me, writers across the board, it, it created. Um, an appetite, a curiosity about certain things. I had been practicing for 12 years at that point. And at no point was anybody as interested, you know, in what I was writing or, you know, this area that I was, that I had been interested in as when Barack Obama became president. It just, you know, opened an entire, I don't know, room up, you know, for journalists that weren't there before. What was that relationship like? So we don't blog anymore. I think that's a huge part of it, right? But I blogged, you know what I mean, all, all the time. And one of the more, you know, um, challenging aspects I felt of my task was to reflect the very real joy that the community that I was a part of, that I lived in, felt. And at the same time, you know, to express my own, you know, very, very specific opinions, you know, some of the things that, you know, I, I, I found deeply disappointing. The Morehouse speech, obviously, is one of the things we immediately, that immediately come to mind, you know, his uh, embrace of respectability politics. The basic notion that, uh, of colorblind policy, you know, which Barack Obama embraced and basically every, you know, uh, Democratic president before him embraced, that the best way to help black people who had been injured by policy that was not, in fact, colorblind was through, you know, some sort of colorblind remediation, class-based policies, as, as, as we call them. It was a huge, huge area, 
you know, of, of disagreement, you know, and I, you know, criticized him, you know, um, all the way through for it. Um, at the same time, you know, um, you know, there were people who felt that he was just a symbol. And that always, you know, drew me up, right? Because it's like, again, I guess it's the flip side of that question about, you know, all of these sort of, you know, reporters who go out in the Trump country and say, are you, are you sorry yet? I concluded just talking to black folks, just watching the black folks, just watching black folks. Yeah, he is a symbol, but maybe that symbol is like really, really important. Maybe we underrate. And, you know, the Confederate flag is also a symbol. All those monuments that we're pulling down, these are also just symbols. These do not in and of themselves create the wealth gap. But maybe symbols actually have some sort of power. Maybe they make some sort of statement about your ambition. Movies, I mean, Black Panther in and of itself is not a piece of policy. It's not reparations. It's not going to, you know what I mean, in and of itself do anything about any of the social indicators. But we have always said that before Barack Obama, you know, the fact that every single president was a white male had some sort of import. We knew that. It could not be that the simple symbol of Barack Obama had no import. And so there's all this, always this conflict between, you know, um, expressing, you know, your disappointment um, in him in terms of, you know, um, how he addressed black folks in a very, um, how shall we say, cautious way. You know, he dealt with, you know, racism, you know, in this country. Um, and the fact that the actual people who you were talking to, you know, um, I mean, I don't know that there was a more popular person in, in, in black America than Barack Obama. Did that mean black people had been brainwashed? Had they been fooled? Did they somehow they been hoodwinked? You know, and as you know, as I said, again, as you know, you know, I would make the same case, you know, for folks in Trump country. I just don't. That's not my approach to the electorate. I think folks know what they're doing. You know, and it's much more interesting to me to try to figure out the why of what they're doing. Could Trump have become president without Barack Obama before him? Any chance at all? Trump could not have become president without the response to Barack Obama. And it's important to state it that way, because I don't think it's anything Barack Obama did except be a human being who happened to check African-American on his census form. Um, You think that was so provocative, Donald Trump? That in itself. Yes. Yes. And it makes sense. It, it makes sense if you believe that, you know, uh, racism and white supremacy is a central thread in American politics. It makes sense that a black president would be a shock to the system. Um, it makes sense. It makes sense that on one side, you know, like we like to celebrate, you know, that, that response to folks like, you know, say in Millennium Park, you know, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008. But what we don't see is that other folks might have had a response to that, too. And in fact, if you look closely through, that, through those whole eight years, it's actually there. I mean, consistently during those, those eight years, anywhere from half to you know, a narrow majority of the Republican Party believed that the president of the United States was illegitimate because he was not born in this country. I mean, that's an incredible statement. And, you know, Trump, obviously, you know, this was how he you know, um, began his uh, our presidential run, um, you know, by embracing that idea. And it was an idea that was much, much more powerful than anybody, including Barack Obama, by the way, understood. Powerful enough to make you president of the United States. You, you are um, famous for, among other things, arguing that there is not necessarily a moral arc of the universe that bends toward justice. 
you've written that there might be a mar- there might be an arc, but it bends toward chaos. Right. So, so uh, the question is, are we in a temporary phase right now, mm-hmm. um, or are we back to the mean? In other words, we had this experiment where we picked a black guy to be president, mm-hmm. but that was nice, and now we're back to something. Uh, we're back to the norm. Do you see? Uh, do you see this as the the last withdrawing roar, to borrow from Matthew Arndt, the last withdrawing roar of American white supremacist thinking? Or are we just back to the way it's always been? Uh, it's probably not the last. I wouldn't say either of those. I mean, how old was Dylan Roof? 20? 21? I mean, he's a kid. Um, it wasn't like the people marching on Charlottesville were 65 years old. There's a lot of young people marching on Charlottesville. You know, and so um, I think it's, you know, naive to think that this this force that has been so powerful in American history and politics is just going to age out. Um, So I I wouldn't say that. Um, I don't know where this goes, but I have to believe that given the power of the White House to have somebody um, in office uh, who is as ignorant as Trump is, that that has long-term effects. You know, that even if you, you know... Go beyond race relations and all yeah. go beyond everything. Well, I think like anything else, you know, uh, uh, the way, you know, white supremacy works in this country is it first, you know, screws, you know, folks over in its narrow area and then it spills out into everything else. So, um, I don't think Trump exists without birtherism. But birtherism is not the end of the harm in which he'll cause. You know, um... And I don't I think that'll, you know, whether Trump is, you know, uh, reelected or not, I think we'll be grappling with that for a while. A question a lot of journalists get. I get this a, a lot uh, is is, OK, so you guys in the mainstream media, you're doing pretty well now because people are reading you. People are subscribing in solidarity with the idea mm-hmm. of the free press. But how are you going to reach the, let's say, the hardcore 30, 35, maybe even 40 percent of America that doesn't accept the basic enlightenment values that there's some such a thing as observable truth? Right. Um, the question I have for you is, how do you what, what is the answer to that question? Because I don't think anybody's come up with a really good one yet. How do you as a journalist go to people who still support Trump? Uh, and, and still believe that he's going to deliver on the things that he promises and, and say to them, well, actually, here are a set of facts and you should be swayed by these facts. Uh, in other words, how, how do you as a journalist recommend, uh, recommend we, we try to convince people to come back into the, uh, fold of observable reality? I don't feel like it's my job. I just it feel- is your job, though, in a kind of way. You gotta, you gotta go out and try to tell people that here's truth and here's falsehood, no? Yeah, but you can't, um, I think buried in your question is the notion that, um, it's your job to, well, first of all, Brady, is that if you present, you know, a set of facts that have been verified, that they somehow will say, oh, those are facts. I'm convinced. Um, oftentimes there are another set of facts that people are operating on that maybe can't be repeated in polite company. Um, well, that sometimes are actually repeated in polite company, as it turns out, you know, as, as, as we're learning. But I, I guess I'm skeptical of that because that, to me, again, is actually more the job of activists. Activists have to figure out how to phrase X, Y, and Z so that people are convinced because they're actually trying to move people. The job, you need somebody who has the ability to say the things that may not be digestible. You, 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 like, if we all start writing like Senate aides, if we all start writing, you know, in, in, in such a way that... Um, and I guess on top of that, you know, 
It has long been the wait for black journalists and black writers to soften their words, to soften their blows so that white people will hear them. Um, and to me, that just takes all the fun out of writing. Why write? <laughs> why write? Go, go lead a bunch of diversity seminars somewhere. I mean, what? <laughs> like, why write? The beautiful thing about writing is, you know, when you sit down at that computer, man, it's you and the white page. It's just you and that page. You know what I mean? And in this, you know, narrow... That's the horrible thing about writing. That is the, the horrible thing, too. Yes, it's both horrible and beautiful. You know, you can do whatever you want. You also can do nothing. Like, that's, you know what I mean? Both of those things can happen. So, you so, know? so I'm going to stipulate that there are many white people in America who don't like you. But are you ever surprised by the... <laughs> he has Gallup polling this question on a daily basis, actually. Uh, are you surprised? I mean, look at this audience. Um, are you surprised that there are so many white people who do actually agree with your understanding of where we're at? And does that give you any hope? Dare I, I use that I, word? I am, but I shouldn't be. There are hundreds of millions of white people in this country. There's a lot of white people in this country. <laughs> and so that's room enough for a lot of white people to not like me and to a much, way much smaller group of white people to like me and still have a room like this. So I should be less surprised. I'm working on being less surprised. Less surprised? That a relatively small group of white people like me. Why would you be surprised? Why would I be surprised? Yeah, yeah. I think because um, I write the way I, I just stated. I think like there, there's a, a notion that somehow if we explain things in a certain way to white people, if we hold their hands like kindergartners and walk them through racism 101, they'll, they'll get it. And one of my motivating features, you know, for writing was, you know, I was talking to, you know, a, a writer, you know, you know, this, this person at, at The Atlantic. And I was telling him the other day, you know, the best thing I, what I love about how he writes is he writes angry. Mm. He writes the way, a, you know, an athlete should play angry. This guy writes angry. And I told him, I said, I'm reading this piece right now, man, and you're not writing angry. And when I write, I don't, I'm not trying to hold hands. I'm trying to write angry. Anger gets a bad rap. You know what I mean? Anger is a very, very human emotion that can be good for something, you know? And I try to write with all of that force and all of that tenacity and, you know, all of that heart, you know, that, that I have. And I, 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 I just, um, I think what a lot of us were trained to believe was if you do that, you know, black folks will hear you and nobody else will. And so I think what I told myself was, okay, that's fine. If only black folks hear me, I'm good. I'm okay with that. And then, you know, you look up and lo and behold, it turns out to be more than that. Uh, I'm going to go to some of these questions that we're getting. We've got a lot of good questions here. Um, if you could ask the 45th president, I don't know why they didn't write the name. Um, <laughs> I wonder who that is. Uh, only one question, what would it be? I mean, this is horrible for a journalist to say. I don't feel like I have questions for Trump. I must feel have, like, no, 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 you must. You're a profiler. I mean, among other things. But he's so blatant. Like, it's so... Like, there's nothing, um, there's no dissembling. Like, he says it. Like, he fired the FBI director. Why'd you fire the FBI director? He said, I thought this Russia thing was bad, so I fired him. <laughs> like, there's no second level. It's clear. It's clear. Isn't that refreshing in a kind of way? I mean, it is kind of refreshing, <laughs> but it's like, you know, problem solved. You know, Donald Trump, why don't you like Judge Curio? He's a Mexican. <laughs> he said it. It's clear. He's a Mexican. Why can't we have people from Haiti? Haiti's a shithole country. <laughs> I mean, okay, I know what you think now. 
I know what you think. But the why, though? Why? Like, don't you ever want to? I mean, it's, I happen to be expressing my own personal fantasy that Ta-Nehisi Coates goes to the Oval Office and spends two hours with Donald what's Trump. What's there to say, though? Like, what's there to talk that about? Would be an, uh, that would be a comic book. That would be, that would be a hell of a comic book. Um, what's there to say is, like, well, tell me your first experience with African Americans. Why, you know, like, what was it like in Queens when you were growing up? I mean, just to, Why would that be interesting for I find it, I think that would be fascinating. I would like to hear him explicate. I mean, that you're, I'm assuming a level, again, I'm not trying to sound condescending here. I'm assuming a, there's a, that, that there can be a level of thoughtfulness in the interchange that would allow him to reflect a little bit on his early experiences with people from other groups. There is nothing about Donald Trump that strikes me as reflective. No, I, I'm, I was... I mean that. No, 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 no. I'm talking about Earth 2. I'm talking about Earth 2 right now. I got that. Um, but I, I, would, I, would, I would think that would be an interesting thing for a reporter to try to do. That's all I'm saying. Huh. No. I guess that's not going to be... You're not going to be reading that in the Atlantic anytime soon, obviously. Uh, there are other, like, you know, conservatives who, who I actually would, you know, I think I actually would enjoy, who? Who? you know, talking to. I mean, anybody else. Paul Ryan. You know, I mean, I, I have some questions for Paul Ryan. What would be your question to Paul Ryan? Do you really, really believe in this tax? Like, is this, do you really, really believe this? Is, I mean, do you really? Because, like, Paul Ryan, like, there's some cover, right? Like, there's actually some, you know what I mean? Like, there actually is some, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm sure somewhere in there is some belief and somewhere in there is a little hustle. You know what I mean? And so as a journalist, you go and try to figure out which is which. You know, but with Trump, it's just, it's what it is, man. It's what it is. I all made you very rich. You know what I mean? Like, it's a straight... You know, down the line, I could shoot somebody out in the middle of Fifth Avenue. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a straight, okay, all right, well, that's what you think. Got it. Got it. I'm going to work on that Paul Ryan thing. Um, <laughs> here's a question. Uh, you wrote an entire book about your son and his relationship to being black in the U.S. What would the ideal superhero look like to your son? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> um, I feel unqualified to answer that. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. Because, I mean, would you want me to, like, um... Like, when I was a kid, my superheroes were Spider-Man. And I don't, like, regret that. You know, Spider-Man is awesome. You know what I mean? Great power, great responsibility. I know about that. You know what I mean? Like, that's a beautiful, you know, sort of message. So, I don't know. Whoever he'd be interested in. Um, next year, we're going to have... We, we both have sons the same age. We were actually going to... We were thinking about sending them out here instead of us. <laughs> see how long that would go. We could talk about comic books all the... Um, here's a question that, that I ask with some hesitation because you might... You might bag it on the grounds that it's more of an activist question, but what would incentivize the privileged uh, to understand and actively work to reverse the injustices that not only built America, but still plague America to date? The belief that it was so central to their interests that they had, that it just had to get done. Um, we have examples of this all through history. Um, at the onset of the American Civil War, no one on either side, one of black people fighting in that war. Frederick Douglass goes to Abraham Lincoln and says, listen, let me you know, raise a regiment of, of black soldiers to fight. Abraham Lincoln does not want black folks fighting. Uh, Emancipation Proclamation is what, 1862? And that's the first you know, sort of you know, presidential document that says you know, uh, that you can raise black troops. Well, by then, you know, the union's getting his butt kicked. And it's like, we actually, you know what I mean? If we're going to win, we actually need black people to fight. You know, I'd rather they didn't. I wish they couldn't. You know what I mean? Because the whole notion of soldier is deeply caught up in this idea of citizenship. And it's quite clear that once folks start dying for their country, you have to, you know, start talking about rights for them. Um, they held it off for as long as they could, you know. Um, 
And it got so bad that by the point, by, the, by you know, towards the end of the war, the Confederate army, having seen these black folks out there fight, said, listen, we need to start thinking about having some black people fight for us. <laughs> right? You know, your interests get so, racism is a luxury. As long as you can afford it, you're going to afford it. It's in those moments where you can't afford it. Why does Robert F. Kennedy, you know, decide that, you know, um, something needs to be done about the Freedom Riders? Well, because the Soviet Union is, you know, using this in a, as a kind of propaganda. Because it's this idea that the country needs to be represented, you know, that there are larger interests at stake in the idea of seeing America as, democracy, as, as a democracy and as the leader of democracy. And when you see people getting bombed on a bus simply because they want to sit on a bus, that undercuts it, undercuts our interests now. So maybe we should actually do something about that. That doesn't mean that they're not. So what's the, what's the price that, uh, I'll just put it bluntly, what is the price that white America has to pay for, in order to actually change these underlying structures? A complete loss of whiteness and its suite of privileges. Um, and I mean that in the most literal, if you want to make that not just, you know what I mean, uh, uh, an abstract thing. Uh, in this country, when I did case for reparations, and it might be more or less right now, but you had a 20 to 1 wealth gap. Um, for every dollar, you know, that, that black people had, I'm sorry, for every nickel that black people had, white, white families in this country had a dollar. Um, obviously, you would, have, you, know, you would have to have the loss of some amount of wealth you know, for the average white family in, in, in this country. Um, massive, dis- massive redistribution of wealth. Um, but the money is just the beginning of it. I mean, you would have to come down here and live like we live, or we'd all have to be raised up you know, to some sort of equal level. Um, Trayvon Martin you know, um, would no longer have to be just an abstraction to you. You know, it would have to be, you know, when, when Barack Obama said, my son, you know, uh, if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon, that had to be true of white people too. Like they would have to actually say that and feel that in a way that black people, you know, feel it. Um, beyond that, bigger than that, I mean, if you think about like how status works in this country, and maybe period for all humans, I, I don't know. The way you define yourself as, you know, having some sort of, you know, place, you know, uh, on a societal ladder is that there's this bottom that you can never sink to. And the promise of whiteness in America has always been that there are a class of people, no matter what happens to you, no matter how many jobs you lose, no matter how many times your wife or your husband leaves you, you know, no high school drop or whatever, you will never be, excuse my language, a nigger. That will never happen to you. And I don't think you can undersell how much the loss of that, the idea that you actually could be on the bottom, that anybody could be on the bottom, the chaos that that represents, you know, for white people in this country, I don't think you should undersell how big that would be. Here's a really interesting question. In reference to... In, uh, it was about Between the World and Me. Um, how might your message have been different or not if you were writing to a daughter? Hmm. I don't know. This is why I'm not a public intellectual. <laughs> and I'll explain why. Because I think, like, I think of, like, as a public intellectual, I could sit here and say, well, I think, you know, black women face a different, you know, sort of suite of um, challenges and dangers. Obviously, I would be concerned about sexual violence. I would be concerned about, you know, having, you know, maintaining rights over, you know, her body and her reproductive rights. And, I, you know, I could go on at length like that. But that's bullshit. And Why is that bullshit? Because I wrote Between the World and Me out of a specific experience I had with Samari Coates. And that's what I know. That's why I didn't write it to a generic black male. 
I wrote it out of specific experiences that I had. I mean, it really goes back, you know, even further than that. It goes to, you know, my friend Prince Jones being killed. Prince Jones was an actual person. There's a work of journalism within that. He was a black male. And that then tied into the fact that the year he was killed, my son was like a month old and I was holding him and I was thinking about that. In other words, it comes from, and I don't mean to demean the person that, that asked the question, but um, it, it is not as if you sit up and say, huh, I'm going to write a book, a letter to a young black male. That, that's not how that book started. It came out of specific, very real, personal, tangible experience. Um, it, it wasn't theory. It wasn't an abstract familiarity. And so having not had that experience with a daughter, because I don't have one, having not had that sort of direct thing, you know, actually happen, it, it, it's tough to know. It's tough to know. It would have came out of whatever those individual, very, very specific experience. It's like asking me, you know, like if I asked you, Jeff, how would you have, you know, uh, written a story that you've never reported on? And you don't know, right? Because you don't know where, you know, what twists and turns, you know, might happen. You know, as you go out and, and, and report, you know, it's tough to know, you know, in the absence of having actually done the work. Uh, here's a question that's probably from Jack Dorsey. Um, will you ever come back to Twitter and or other social channels? <laughs> no. It's actually from somebody else, not Jack Dorsey. Okay. No. Um, what do you mean? No, no? No, never. Never say never. No, I'm saying never. <laughs> Really? Yeah. I mean, this is on the record. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never do that again. No, why? Talk about it. Um, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, like this idea of, um, first of all, I had fun on Twitter. It was very fun. It's a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I miss it. I wish I could beat it. I really do. Um, but I think part of maturity is understanding what is good for you and what is not good for you. And I don't think it was good for me. I am not making a um, declaration about Twitter that I think holds true for all other Twitter users. I I'm talking about me. Um, I'm a person that's, you know, sort of slow, as I said, that likes the nuance of things, that likes books, you know, that likes, you know, the space and the time to think that, you know, um, enjoy slowing things down, you know, a little bit that, you know, writes things that I think, um, or tries to write things. You think Twitter is bad for you or bad for society or both? I'm hesitant to say it's bad for society. I think it's bad for me. And I suspect that it's bad for writers like me. In other words, writers who do what I do, I think it's probably not good for them. Um, it's not good. Like one of the, it's not good to be able to have an opinion for someone like me, someone like me who already has a voice, who already has a platform. Um, it's not good for me to be able to just immediately vent whatever opinion I had while I was drinking coffee that morning with my wife. That's not good. What do I know? Have I thought about it? Have I batted around back and forth? Have I read about it? But you're a, you know, guy, you're a guy who, when you were much less famous, you were blogging, and your method of blogging was to take people inside your mind and mm -hmm. say, this is what I'm thinking about right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answers. That, that doesn't have any appeal anymore? Yeah, but I had a really controlled check on that, and that was my, my comment section, um, which was a really curated group of people who could push back and forth and go 
you know, all different ways. And sometimes I could highlight their opinions and say, you know, I thought this yesterday, but X, Y, and Z person said this. You know, in Twitter, you know, you're, you're in a situation where, like, not only can you not see the person, you don't have any established relationship with the person. Um, communication, I think, I think, again, you know, I'm hesitant to make grand pronouncements, but I think it's really, really based on there has to be some shared something. You know, um, I think anonymity is probably bad in terms of the things people will say to each other. Um, I think that's the first thing. And then I think, you know, even within anonymity, there can be, you know, some sort of relationship, the lack of real relationship. I think the things, you know, sometimes people say that they would not say if they were sitting next to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's tough. I mean, whatever I write in my articles, you know what I mean? Um, I have no problem saying, you know, to people, you know what I mean? If I wrote something about, you know, President Obama when he was, you know, in office, you know, and I had to go into a room and I had no problem talking to him. I had no problem repeating it at all. You know, um, a little nervous about it, but I could do it. <laughs> you know, I could do it. You know what I mean? Um, when you start, like, saying things, you know, about people, call it in a way that you know if y'all were sitting next to each other, you just wouldn't do it. You just wouldn't do it. I, I, I don't know. And I think maybe the platform lends itself to people doing that. Now, maybe that people with better control, you know, X, Y, mm -hmm. and Z, you know, um, somebody like me shouldn't be. I shouldn't be there. I shouldn't be in that room. Uh, I'm going to come back to comics just for a, a, a final question. What are the political pressures of the Marvel Universe? Presumably it's partly mm -hmm. old school, comic bookish, partly current. How do you synthesize all that? And then a very happy thanks. <laughs> I like that. It's very polite. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's a great question. Um, I think in this way, um, the comics connect to the nonfiction work because when you're doing comics at a place like Marvel, you start with a story that's already in motion, that's already ongoing. Um, and so in order to write that story, much like writing a story for The Atlantic, you actually have to do all this historical research. You have to read all these other comic books. You know what I mean? And you have to base whatever you're writing. At least I do. Other people don't. You know, they retcon or do whatever. But for myself, I try to base it on what happened before. So like any formulation I have of Captain America is usually based on or will be based on whatever happened before, you know, and the research of that. Um, I love that stuff. I think it's really, really cool. You know, I love, you know, being part of, you know, some sort of, you know, bigger, you know, arc and, 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 and bigger story. It's a lot of fun for me. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, next year at this time, it will be Ta-Nehisi and Paul Ryan in this chair. I hope you're all back for that. Ta-Nehisi, thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. The Atlantic interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. Special thanks this week to the South by Southwest video team. My entire conversation with Ta-Nehisi Coates unedited is on the South by Southwest YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us if you like this podcast. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and I'll see you soon.